The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Do you have to rush to use the toilet? Do you wake up twice or more during the night to go to the toilet? Do you sometimes leak when you lift something heavy, sneeze, cough or laugh? Do you sometimes leak when you exercise or play sport? Do you strain to empty your bowel? Incontinence is defined as any accidental or involuntary loss of urine, bowel motion or wind. Incontinence is extremely common and can affect children, adults of all ages, genders and cultural backgrounds. Yet sadly, many people suffer in silence, being too embarrassed to seek help. According to the Continence Foundation of Australia, over 5 million Australians have bladder or bowel control problems for a variety of reasons. So today on MediTalk, I speak with Mary King, a nurse practitioner of 40 years, who specialises in this area of medicine and who works at Continence and Neurology at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. How many people are diagnosed incontinent in Australia every year? Well, well only, approximately. approximately. Yeah. Well, I've only got figures from 2018, and at that time it was 1.2 million. And they were registered people that are, were on PAD schemes at that time. So, And there are a lot of people in that over that amount that actually would be incontinent but have never seeked help or gone to get appliances. So these were people that were on basic packages, really, you could say. And now with NDIS, there would be a lot more people. I think there's about 1.2 million on the NDIS um, at the moment. So there would be a lot more people that are suffering from incontinence either silently or seeking help. And I think you just saying that makes me realise how many people are out there in the community that are mm. suffering in mm. silence. Yeah. Well, it's still an embarrassing subject. No matter what you say to people, it's still embarrassing. Who wants to go along and say to their doctor, I'm leaking urine or I'm leaking faeces because it does incontinence covers both urine and faeces. So for those people, it's just far too embarrassing. And then who suffer more from this condition and why? Any person can have incontinence at any time in their life. Some, it is transient and some it is totally curable and some we just have to manage it. Um, for males, and God is a male, no matter what anybody says, he gave them a fail-safe mechanism for continence. And so it's only when they have surgery, like prostate surgery or rectal surgery, um, that they develop incontinence. Um, but they do suffer from urge incontinence, very similar to females. In the female, well, because we, we're behind the eighth ball to begin with, with a weakened pelvic floor, big babies, long labours, um, they contribute to stress incontinence in females. Um, and some, there are comorbidities, so diabetes, uh, stroke, um, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease. Obesity is fast becoming the big cause because it weakens the pelvic floor. Spinal um, motor vehicle accidents and spinal surgery. And of course, some drugs will cause incontinence. Wow, that's a long list of people that can... <laughs> and when you look at the people that you're surrounded with in your family, it's yeah. like, oh, my God, you know, you have a high risk. High. Not everybody will get incontinence with those comorbidities, but there'll be a certain percentage of people that will get incontinent because of their disease process and, unfortunately, will probably not be curable. 
And the thing is, when you start talking about comorbidities and just that list, it makes me think, you know, quite often people are, who are overweight are diabetic mm. Mm. and then sort of you're adding that. On top of everything and, else. On top of, and then they'll mm. be on medications. Yep. And then I suppose when you start adding those factors up, mm. it really increases people's risk of perhaps suffering yeah, incontinence. Suffering from incontinence, yes. And then so you've talked about what, what causes incontinence other than those conditions? It's a weakening of the pelvic floor would be the biggest reason in both sexes, um, combined with the comorbidities. But for the general population who are young, under the age of 60, um, a weakened pelvic floor would be the biggest issue. Oh, that pelvic floor. <laughs> As I say to my patients, the last breath you take on this earth, both male and female, is the last pelvic floor exercise you do. Is that right? That's right. Yep. You, it's not something that you do to get better and then forget about it. It's like anything. You exercise to stay well. Your pelvic floor muscle has to be exercised to stay well. And the, uh, uh, we can talk about that later, but um, easier said than done with pelvic floor. Oh yes, it? it is easier said than done, and that's and everybody wants a quick fix, unfortunately, in this day and age. Um, and when you tell them that no, you have to have pel you have to have good strong pelvic floors, even if the doctors do stress incontinence surgery, you need to have a good strong pelvic floor for it to last, longevity of that that surgery, because the surgery is only a facelift. That's all it is. It's just tightening up a pelvic floor muscle. And if you don't keep it tight, it's in seven years' time, you're back to square one again. And can you have good genetics that you're just naturally born with a good pelvic floor? Yes. Oh. If you're Asian, <laughs> um, Asian women have a much stronger pelvic floor and it, it is believed because they are um, a squatting um, oh, right. culture still in some respects. Um, when you look at Singapore, in 100 years of westernised rule, they have actually become suffering from stress incontinence because they've gone off the squatting of that was their lifestyle. When you look in China, they don't have stress incontinence, they have urge incontinence. So it's a very different um, process. So I even if you've got good genes and a good you're born with a good mm. pelvic floor, you still need to exercise Oh, it. God, yes. And over the generations, um, the pelvic floor muscle has actually weakened and we're not too sure as to why this congenital um, relapse um, sort of the pelvic floor weakness is occurring. Um, and, of course, we don't do half the jobs that our parents did. You know, we don't lug heavy washing around. Mind you, doing heavy heavy work is wrong for your pelvic floors. But in my parents' day and age, um, they would do a lot of different work. They would scrub their floors on their hands and knees, which is great for your pelvic floors. Not so good for you personally, but great for your pelvic floors. Yeah, mm. right. So can you explain the different types of incontinence? Because I was doing some reading on the internet, as we all do, and um, it seemed a little bit confusing. <laughs> uh, I bet well, you get this every day in your <laughs> clinics. Well, the, the trouble is with the types of pelvic, uh, types of incontinence is that they can also be together, like stress incontinence, so leakage with laughing, sneezing, coughing, running, um, they, that's basically can be the weakness of the pelvic floor. You can be a marathon runner and still have weak pelvic floor muscles. And so when you run, you leak urine and or faeces in some cases. Urge incontinence is where you get the urge to go to the toilet and you don't make it. So you either have a small amount of leakage just before you get to the toilet or the key in the front door syndrome when you're standing and hurry up, open the door, open the door. Um, and that urge incontinence can be a very small amount or it can be a very large amount. It can be in combination with stress incontinence because if you start having stress incontinence, people decide that every time they see a toilet door, they're going to go in. Mm. They reduce their 
their bladder capacity, and that then encourages urging continence. And from urging continence, it can then go worse and become a nervous and um, have have, co have a um, nervous component to it when it becomes overactive bladder, which is coming from the spine. So often when you see patients, it's like you might have urging continence, but you could have an overactive bladder. And part of the assessment usually weeds out who needs to have further investigations. And then you can have retention, which is where you're retaining urine. So if you've had some sort of form of surgery, you can pass urine and you'll still have what we call a high post void residual or else you can actually go into total retention where you can't pass urine at all, which is a huge problem after spinal surgery. And we do have to teach people to put catheters in to drain their bladder so that they don't get kidney failure from the um, urine going backwards up into the kidney and, and um, making them um, dead, basically, dead kidneys. Mm. Um, and then you've got enuresis, which is the new name. Well, it's not the new name. It's been around now for about 15 years. But um, it was used to be called bedwetting, but there was a bit of a stigma attached to bedwetting, so they now call it enuresis. Oh, right. The bedwetting something that you'd also, you can, I think, when people talk about bedwetting is they might just think it's something that a child might get, but no, adults are getting no. it as well. Um, with ad well, well, unfortunately, with bedwetting, as a child, um, not everybody gets totally dry and it can go right through. I've had a 50-year-old woman that had bedwetting and she tried everything under the sun, medication, she didn't go to a psychiatrist and they all said it was psychological. But... Um, we actually got her dry after a long, long treatment program wow. and at the age of 51 she said, I'd never had any children because I didn't want to inflict this bedwetting on them. Aww. It was so sad. She said, where were you 30 years ago? I said, I wasn't doing this job. Well, actually, in actual fact, I was doing the job but we didn't do what we do now. So, yeah, so some people do have it long through their lifetime yeah. and some people just give up in the end. Well, I've had everything under the sun so why am I doing this? And so can they have you know, people born with or they might have a, a tendency to bed wet when they're a child and it go throughout their life? Yeah, they can. Um, or what can happen is they can be cured as a child, but as they get older, it can come back like in their 60s and 70s. It can actually oh. come back to haunt them. And bedwetting is familial, they know. It's not genetic, but it can be familial. And we're not too sure as to why. There's lots of research that's been done. And unfortunately, I don't um, do bedwetting anymore because yeah. we're an adult service. Of course. Most of the bedwetters go to the community or go to to um, the, ch the children's hospital or the, um, and they put them out to the community services. Is, I, I'd just like to say, is it as your time working as long as you have so experienced, is it something that people can get over? So that's an important message, if they get the right help? They can, but in a lot of cases... It's very difficult to diagnose. There's oh. a lot of assessment work to do and sometimes um, people just, people give up on treatment programs because they all, as I say, they want the quick fix and a treatment program is not a quick fix. But if they're committed like that... If they're committed, most of them will. Yeah. You know, if we're not, if we don't get them 100% dry, they'll be improved. When should people seek professional help? I say to my patients, when you start dripping is when you go to get help. A dripper we can cure. A person who's flooding we probably won't cure. We might improve them, but we will not cure them. So um, you don't wait. You know, people might say, I've been dripping for a week, two weeks. Is there a time period where... Um, okay, it's a bit difficult to say, really, because most people... I mean, women will actually have... Um, premenstrually will have a higher risk of 
of having incontinence because the oestrogen level drops and the progesterone level takes over, so it weakens the pelvic floor muscle. So you and you get bloated and you get constipated, and then that can make you have stress incontinence. And because it goes after their period, everybody thinks, oh, that's just you know one of those things that happens before my period. Or if I play sport or I cough, oh, I've got a cold, so I'm licking a bit of urine. That's when you do need to come and do something about it. Um, and yeah, it's it's important that you realise that it's like a dripping tap. Okay. It is going to get worse as time goes over and the sooner we get you into a treatment program, the better. So is it a part of ageing and should we just accept being incontinent? No, with a capital N, it's not a part of ageing. It's more a fact of the comorbidities that will occur with ageing that will cause the incontinence, but it's definitely not a part of, of ageing. Uh, in our clinic, we run two clinics, one for the under 65s and one for the over 65s, and we see, appro well, we see approximately um, 15 patients every week. So some are new, some are treatment programs. Yeah. Mm. So your advice is... If you're dripping, go do something about it. Go yep. and seek help. Mm. Yep. And so, how is the condition actually diagnosed? Well, now, this is where some people balk coming to have a um, an assessment. It's an assessment. You have to have an assessment. You have to be examined at some stage. And with some patients, I might not do it on the first visit, but I warn them that we will need to look down the nether regions on the second visit. Um, we also then will be testing their urine. We will get them to pass urine and then we check what we call a post-void bladder scan to make sure they haven't got retention with overflow because you could have stress incontinence symptoms, but that's because your bladder's not emptying properly. So we need to make sure the diagnosis before we work out what we're going to do with their program. And then we give them homework. What sort of homework? <laughs> <laughs> they get what they call a bladder diary. Mm -hmm. And this is integral because a good bladder diary tells you what really is going on with the patient. And they have to measure what they drink and they have to measure what they wee. So I tell them to go to Red Dot and get a little $2 measuring jug, put an ice cream, um, empty ice cream container in their toilet and then take it out and measure the urine that's in there. And that diary then will tell us what type of incontinence they've got. It is the most important part of treating their incontinence and it often negates them to have any other further assessment. So some of them might need x-rays, somebody might, somebody might need a specialised test called Eurodynamics, which we don't do very often because it's not really that helpful. Sometimes it's only helpful if a person is failing um, treatment and they, we need to positively diagnose whether it's a bladder issue or is it a spinal issue um, or is it coming from their brain. Basically, we need to work out because normal pressure hydrocephalus in the elderly person will come with a mobility issue, but in actual fact, they've just got recent incontinence and that's the precursor to identifying that they've got this um, normal pressure hydrocephalus. So a lot of things... And like constipation can be a precursor to getting Parkinson's disease. Not necessarily. Don't everybody grab that thing and think if they've got constipation, they've got Parkinson's. But it sometimes is, the, is a precursor to diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So something like incontinence can actually tell us a lot about other disease processes. You said something very interesting thing because I think we all think incontinence is always just about the bladder, but it can be about your related oh, to your everything. spine and your brain. Yeah. It, and when you see it, and that's why we have to do a really good thorough assessment and and we have to work out when you bring back your bladder diaries and you look at some of these bladder diaries, 
it's like, <clears throat> well, hang on a minute. <laughs> um, if you didn't drink your six cans of beer in the evening, you wouldn't be getting up at night to go to the toilet and you wouldn't have the problems with going frequently to the toilet. Um, so you know, just stopping your beer, mate, is going to stop you from having mm. incontinence problems. Um, if you're a person who's um, young um, and they're having some incontinence, we have to exclude, is it a spinal problem? Have they mm. injured their spine at some time? So there's lots of different things that come from looking at the bladder diary, looking at what their symptoms are and as to what we're next going to do with their treatment program. And when you talk about the brain um, could be a part of this, is that because the brain's perhaps um, being signalled or uh, getting messages and, and then making you want to wee? How does the brain come into it? Okay, there's a micturition centre in the brain and as a child, when we're toilet trained, we actually teach this This controls your bl your bladder emptying and filling. So my micturition centre is on the left side of my brain mm -hmm. So because on the brain it's opposite. So it goes down my right side and that identifies the urge to go to the toilet. Now, I'm giving a lecture, I'm talking to you here. Yeah, I'm learning. <laughs> so I can't very well say, okay, I need to go to the toilet. No, no, I'm talking. Yeah, so the left side of the brain then takes over and says, right, you bladder, hold on, and the pelvic floor muscles and pudendal nerve, you block off the um, sphincter and you hold on until you go to do, you know, till you leave and then I'll go to the toilet. And then the metrician centre will go through my pontine, which is my eyeballs, and say, right, she's doors closed, she's sitting on a toilet, pants are down, okay, now you can send the synapse down, bladder contract, pudendal nerve relax and you pee. Mm. So if I have a left-sided stroke, my mm. cortical micturition centre is going to be affected and I'm going to have to relearn because luckily we have two of them, one on the right and one on the left. Yeah, our, our body is just amazing, isn't yeah. it? And I will reteach my right side to wake up and take over that mechanism and that'll be fine while I'm in the day but nine times out of ten or eight times out of ten at night it's an issue because when you go to sleep, that maturation centre often will be a, a, an issue and you might have incontinence at night, not all the time but occasionally. And you take it all happening for granted, yeah. don't you? Because oh, it yeah. happens so quick. Yeah, yeah. You take it for granted of like that you I think can... it's three to five seconds, the synapse that comes from the maturation centre through the pondine, down the spine, into the bladder. So that's why you really have to look at everything. And I suppose it's not until you have a child and your toilet training you realise what a big deal it is to learn those is, things. Yeah. You know? If you're the terrible mother that says, come on, Johnny, sit on the potty, like I've been doing with my new puppy, come outside and do a wee, um, eventually that uh, the child has a small bladder capacity, whereas if you let the child identify the urge to go, like in my day we didn't have pull-up pull pants, we just put them in little cotton nappy uh, mm. knickers and they went outside and got wet and came in and went, yuck, mummy, look. And I'd say, yes, that's when you go to the toilet. Yeah. So eventually they identify. And is that a better way of teaching? Yeah, it is a better way of oh, teaching. Right. And it's better to teach a child in summer than in winter. I didn't know all this. And it's good to actually have a proper toilet seat with little steps up and a, and a seat that sits on top of the adult toilet. If you want your child to pee in an adult toilet, don't try and get them these little inserts because that can pinch their bottom and then that turns them off going to the toilet. And these lovely, they're only $36 from Woolies and they are perfect because they've got little stairs and children need to have their feet on a support structure to empty. Wow, that's yeah. a really good bit of information that right there for parents, new parents out there. And so that's the best way to... Yeah. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Some people get a bit, you know, nut about, you know, wetting the carpet and stuff like that, which... <laughs> 
after having this new puppy, I'm beginning to think the same thing. <laughs> My house so, is smelling of disinfectant and vinegar, so but we're just, getting there. So it's just about patience. Yeah, patience. <laughs> yeah. And so what should we know about the varying treatment options? Because I'm sure they are very varying out there. Okay. Well, it really depends on the type of incontinence that you're actually managing. Um, there are a lot of treatment programs. Um, you always have pelvic floor exercises. That's the start off. Um, you um, with physio. We have a great physiotherapist that we work with at Charlie's, but so do the other hospitals. The other hospitals have a great physiotherapy service, and physiotherapy is integral to part of the service. Um, the physiotherapist has the time to give patients to teach them pelvic floor exercises, um, and that's you know it has to be a good women's health trained physiotherapist or a physiotherapist that has done training in pel and, and um, incontinence. Um, and um, and we work hand in glove, yeah. basically, because if I have a difficult patient, I have to let her know the difficulties with that patient so that she's aware so that she can change her treatment program to match that patient. And then she'll tell me what's happening with the patient. And then when the patient comes back, excuse me, if they're not successful, we will then go and do further um, investigations. So treatment mostly is pelvic floor exercises. Depending on the type of incontinence, um, it will be medications. Um, there may be surgery, plus or minus surgery. Then we've got Botox that we're now using to treat bladders. And, yeah, I like, I like to get some for my wrinkles in my face. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't been able to. Um, and then they've got new, a new... Um, well, not a new operation. It's been done for about 20 years now, or no, 10, 15 years, uh, sacroneuromodulation, which is an implant for the bladder. But not every patient can have all of that because it just depends on their type of incontinence. And, you know, if you want to see a doctor, see a doctor because they're, they're urologists, gyno-urologists, gynecologists, they all uh, are there now. You know, we've got this help everywhere. There's no need for people to, to suffer. And suffer in silence. Mm. So their first port of call would be their um, GP yep. or could they go to their, their community physio if, if they can't yep. get into a hospital? If they can't get into a... I mean, the biggest problem you've got with physiotherapy, it can be very expensive. And so with a lot of the patients, um, a public physiotherapy service is, is good, but it's stretched as you can imagine. Mm. So if they want to, they can find a good a women's health physiotherapist in their area. Um, and then if that doesn't work, they can get to their GP. But the physiotherapist will say, no, you need to see a surgeon. You've got a prolapse. You need to see a gynecology surgeon. And yeah, so um, other physio, GP, continent service. Unfortunately, we do have to have a GP referral now for all of the services within the public hospital system. Okay. And then pads form a, a major part of managing output. So are they all the same? And, you know, when we're, we're going to the supermarket or we're going to the chemist, I mean, how do you choose the right pad for you? Depends on the level of incontinence. And unfortunately, everybody wants the pull-up pants. You see that lady on the TV, the depend lady, look, I'm wearing a pad and I look really good and you can't see it. But at the end of the day, they might not need a pad with that capacity. They might only need a little tiny liner or a pad that's a little bit bigger. So at the end of the day, you need to be seen to get the right product 
really. Um, it will depend on your level of incontinence. So if you're leaking and you're leaking out and you're leaking down your legs, then you might need the pull-up pants with the big capacity. But if you're only just wetting your knickers, you might just need a liner or a little bit more than your knickers, then you might need a little bit bigger pad. And don't use sanitary lines. You must get a proper continence product because sanitary lines in the good old black and gold from Coles and Woolies um, does not absorb urine effectively. Okay. So there is a difference between them. And then where would you get your advice from? Or is it a trial and error thing that people would just go and try a few different pads and um, and and really be able to evaluate the, the effectiveness themselves? Or should they go and seek some advice? They can do that. But look, if you're going to wear a little pad, we can cure you. For heaven's sakes, do something about it. You know, a relative just spoke to me recently about being incontinent and saw a lovely OT who gave gave them a pair of pull-up pants. And I went, well, why didn't you do something about it? You know, why didn't you go and get help? And he, that person said, oh, I'm happy with the pants. Well, mm. that's really sad that the first point of call was to put a pad on that person when they should be properly evaluated and if we can do something, do something about it. Because does it affect also your quality of life, like in terms Eventually of... Eventually it does, yeah. yeah. There's a 10% higher rate of um, death with people with incontinence and dementia because they become incontinent and they don't want to go out, they don't want to socialise. And that's the biggest problem with dementia. You've got to get out there, you've got to socialise, you've got to see people. And if you're incontinent and you smell of urine, you're too scared to go out. Mm. Or if you have an accident on a chair, you're too scared to go out. So therefore these people then become more isolated and then they get more dementia because they're not, or they stop drinking. We now know that there's a um, a correlation between poor fluid intake and, and early dementia. Mm. Oh, wow. And I was about to say too, I'm sure people get fearful if they are incontinent and they think, well, I'll just drink less. I know. And what, what's oh. the answer to that? <laughs> you don't have to drink heaps. You have to drink between six and eight cups of fluid a day and Three to four can be tea or coffee and the rest should be water. And if you don't like water, stick some cordial in it as long as it's not red and green cordial. Lemon barley cordial is really good. Um, but, you know, you must have between six and eight cups of fluid a day. You don't have to drink four litres or three litres because that causes other problems. Um, you're more at risk of having going to the toilet too frequently. Um, but, yeah, up to 1,800 to two litres is more than enough fluid. Half water. And what about the beautiful ladies out there that have had children and they're young and, well, not even, it doesn't matter about age, but they've had a baby and they're getting some incontinence, you know, go and seek help? Yeah, well, they should be um, put in touch with the physiotherapy service attached to the hospital. Um, King Ed has got three physiotherapists to look after their antenatal department and one for the general hospital patients. And they have a huge outpatient service. And before that patients even go to see the physiotherapist there, they get to see the urologist or the urogynecologist there and they get assessed. And yes, you do need to have pelvic floor exercises. Um, so really, you know, if, if you're offered it, take it. Don't say, oh, no, I'll be all right. Mm. I can do the exercises on myself. Take the antenatal care that's mm. given to you. It's really important in the long run. I wish they taught that at, back at high school in our health classes about how to do pelvic floor. Sounds like we all need to have learnt it a long time ago when we're well, kids. Actually, I used to do teaching in the schools to 16-year-olds, to the um, 16- and 17-year-old group. But, of course, at that age group, it's all snickers and laugh behind yeah. your hands. So the effectiveness, when we did the research on it, the effectiveness with a physiotherapist and myself 
the effectiveness of the training was sort of like mm, it's a bit too young too to be young. teaching them. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Some people took it on board and others, you know, they weren't ready for it. So, yeah, it's a bit hard. And what about um, men realising that men need to do pelvic floor exercises as well? <laughs> men do it better than women. Really? Yes, because they don't like wearing pads. And the minute you tell them that if they do their pelvic floor exercises, it helps with erectile dysfunction, trust me, they do their exercises. So they find the motivation. Oh, they find the motivation that way. The women, it doesn't really matter. They don't oh. bother. And they don't have that motivation with women. Yeah. And with women, it's like, oh, well, I'll just put a pad on. And then, oh, hang on a minute, I'm, not, I'm leaking around that line and now I'll get a bigger one and then I get a bigger one and it's like, oh, God, why didn't you come to me when you were dripping? Yeah. Mm. And are there any successful stories that just always stick in your mind that you think oh, God, you the must years, get so many over the years I've had some great success stories and I've had some the lady with the aneurysis that was 51 that was probably the most amazing one because she just she just couldn't believe she was dry and she and her husband had never been in a hotel because she was too scared she was going to wet the bed so he'd go on holidays on his own oh, really? and just after I um, we had a dry and all her own work, I just look good. <laughs> um, she said, she came back and she said they had booked a trip to Europe and, oh. you know, it just changed her whole life. Wow. So there are lovely people like that and there are some people that we've had dismal, not dismal failures, but we just haven't been able to get the right program for them and, you know, and some people just find it too hard and never come back and complete a program. So mm. it really comes down to having a... And that inner motivation and drive yeah. to want that change, yeah, change. and commit to a program mm. and and get good support around you yeah. by the sound of it. Well, with a lot, some of the patients, not all of them, with some of the patients that have had it for a while, in the end, it's all too hard. Just give me the pad, and that's I understand that it is hard to do a treatment program. You really do have to be motivated to do yeah. a treatment program. Mm. And then, what advice do you give to people that just feel so embarrassed to speak to someone? <laughs> can you can you can you work with um, people like that? And yeah, you can. Yeah, it yeah. just that if, it's like anything. Reach out for help, and it's there if you want it. Um, if you don't really want to undertake a program, you can go to the Continence Foundation of Australia's website, and they actually have every type of incontinence um, program on there. So you can read it up and say, well, yeah, that's for me. I can do that. Um, if you don't want to go seek help or see somebody face-to-face, -face, they do a really good um, pelvic floor exercise um, section where they have a physiotherapist talking about the pelvic floors. Um, with their urgent continence, they've got a lovely um, a bladder tra bladder retraining program. So people understand what they're going to come and see you about, hopefully necessary. If they don't want to seek help face-to-face, -face, they can get it online. But good reputable. Dr Google is not a good reputable no. site. So but Continents Australia. Uh, Continents Foundation of Australia. And they go to resources. So it's a drop-down screen. It's a very, very easy one to um, you know navigate, even if you're just a basic learner. And then would they have a phone line as well? They do have a phone line. So they can put you in touch with somebody who's closest to where you live. Um, in the country, you can actually have telehealth. So there's no nowhere anywhere. So there's lots of, lots yeah. of resources out lots, there. Yeah, lots of resources out there. And then what are some common misunderstandings about the condition that, that you see in your practice? That we can cure everybody would be the biggest one. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's not my my magic wand is sometimes just not there. Yeah, um, you know there's, it's very difficult with some of the patients that we have, and I have to be honest. Some people we can do a lot with, and some people I just have to say I'm really sorry, but 
we'll do these tests, but I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to improve your in your situation. Right. And some people come and, like, especially when it comes to bowels, you have to eat properly, you have to drink fluids, you have to follow the program, you have to do pelvic floor exercises. And at some people it can be just be too overwhelming and they just can't do it. You know, um, so what you eat does affect. Oh gosh, yeah. 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 Well, you need to have a certain amount of fibre. You need to have fluids yes. to make your bowels work, and you need to move. You need to exercise. So if I'm in a wheelchair already, I'm behind the eighth ball with my mm. bowels because I'm not moving. Yeah. You know, I say to people, just walk up and down. If you, you live in a house in Florida, you've got a long hot corridor. Walk up and down that corridor six, ten times a day. Walk to the letterbox six to ten times a day. That will help. So you've got to find a way forward. Mm, yeah. And then what are the ways other than pelvic floor, because we've talked about that a lot, what are other ways that we can prevent incontinence? Stay within the um, recommended weight range, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I'm not in that recommended weight range because as you get older, unfortunately, you do put weight on around the middle part of you from your oestrogen loss. Um, do your pelvic floor exercises, really. That's the biggest thing. And watch what we eat. And watch what we eat. And it doesn't mean you don't have to give yourself that, you know, a chocolate biscuit every now and again or, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that, but you just got to start to look at yourself and say, well, hang on, I am overweight. I'm sitting watching the TV all the day. If I don't want to go outside and walk, then walk around your garden if you've got a garden. You know, you can do it six or seven times. I remember watching this woman who had been hugely obese and all she did was walk around her, um, or she had a tiny garden, walk around a clothesline. I remember that yeah. story. And she, and she lost pa- 100 ki- kilos. Yeah, yeah. she lost all her weight. Yeah, she went from being 180 kilos to 80 kilos. It took her over 18 months. But it's inspirational. But, yeah, you know, and I think to myself, well, there, you know, people Simple. can do it. But she was lucky she didn't have um, some people who get morbidly obese, unfortunately, because of their weight, can't move, and that's yes. a big issue. Yeah. yeah. And then so... We've done a lot of talking, a lot of great information. What are some key messages that, that we, some takeaways to put it all together? <laughs> so do something about it earlier, okay? Be motivated to do your treatment program. I can only guide you. I can't cure you. You're the person that cures you. Then you make me look good. <laughs> <laughs> make everyone look good. <laughs> but you're happier and I'm happier. Um, yeah, and, um, and do, do come and get help. It's there. It's there for you. Every public hospital has a continent service, every single one in the state. Unfortunately, now in Broome, we just lost a continence advisor, but there is another nurse that's taken over. But I'm not too sure whether she's attached to the hospital or to the aged care department. Um, there is one for the Aboriginal Medical Service. So this, there is help out there. You've just got to go, where is it closest to me? And your GP will know this because you can get out and do things. You don't have to wear a pad. Well, you might have to wear a little pad, but get out there and do things. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Mary. I've learned a lot and I'm sure so many of us that listen to this podcast will as well. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take thank care. You. A big thank you to Mary King for sharing her time and knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And to learn more about Continence, visit continence.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. 
To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.